Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. We are being ageist any time we make an assumption about a person or a group of people on the basis of how old we think they are. It's any judgment on the basis of age. Ashton Applewhite, the author of This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism, joins the podcast to discuss ageism in healthcare in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior Vice President, Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Ashton Applewhite. Ms. Applewhite is an activist, author, presenter, and a thought leader who wrote This Chair Rocks, a Manifesto Against Ageism. She also co-founded the website Old School Anti-Ageism Clearinghouse, which has hundreds of free downloadable resources on aging and ageism. She has a TED Talk entitled Let's End Ageism, And in 2022, she was recognized as one of the Healthy Aging 50 by the United Nations Decade of Healthy Aging, to name just a few of her numerous honors. Ms. Applewhite, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. May I call you Ashton? Please. All right. Please call me Tim. First, on the podcast, when I first start talking to a guest, I ask them about their path and how they got into what they do now. (laughs) I'm laughing because anytime anyone asks to see my CV, I know I'm in trouble because I have never, ever had anything um, approaching a discernible or logical career path. Uh, I started writing about aging because I uh, looked in the mirror one day and went, geez, this getting older thing is actually happening to me. And which I think we're, we're, you know, we're reluctant to acknowledge it for a whole bunch of reasons, but I think it's hard to imagine getting older. And then you're like, oh, I am not going to be the only human in the world that it doesn't happen to. I realized how apprehensive I was. And I started digging into that, researching longevity and realized in a very, very short period, months, if not weeks, how little I actually knew about what it was like to be really old because I started interviewing people over 80, and um, digging into what was going on. And it became also very obvious early on that ageism, age bias between our ears and in the world was the reason I was so afraid and so clueless. You know, it reminds me of a, a line from the show ER years ago where somebody said, you know, we we need to call a doctor. And they're like, you're the doctor. You know, sometimes in our in our brains, we're like, I'm still a certain age that is not on my driver's license. Um, so start the conversation because I, you know, I've been following your your materials and other folks who are talking about ageism. Can you ground the audience in Asia ageism, and in particular in medicine? Uh, you bet. I mean, first of all, a a definition. Um, we are being ageist any time we make an assumption about a person or a group of people on the basis of how old we think they are. It's any judgment on the basis of age. Typically, um, you're too old because we live in an incredibly youth-obsessed society, but it can work the other direction. I remember I'm fortunate not to have been in the hospital in a while, but I uh, spent a couple days because I had a kidney infection, and I remember being in the ER and looking around the bed and thinking, oh my God, all these people are 12. And my... (laughs) And my next thought was, honestly, you know, they're not 12 and they're clearly incredibly expert in what they do. And I knew I was in good hands. But that first rush was what these people are too young 
to be physicians. And of course, I was wrong, but I that was but we're all ageist all the time, even if you think about it all the time, like I do. Um, ageism is manifest in medicine. Um, I can't give me give me a domain where you don't think it's present, and I will find it. I mean, a thousand examples: the the exclusion of older people from medical trials, for example. When older people take more uh, medications, doctors spend more time with younger patients and are more open to their concerns, even though older people have more health care. Older people aren't screened as much. Um, older people are not listened to in medical settings, especially if you are female, especially if you are a person of color, and on and on and on. Right. And so a lot of my questions are going to kind of be like the website you have, which I find the, the title of great. Yo, is this ageist? Um, so I'm going to ask a bunch of questions that probably could have appeared on that web page. And my first one is, is that clearly words and terms matter. And as a physician and epidemiologist, I know I've heard and likely use the expression, quote, older ad adults are at higher risk of so-and-so. So my first question is, yo, is, is that ageist? It is always ageist to attribute the um, cause to age alone. One of the many thought experiments I would like to have in the world is, of course, age belongs on our medical charts. It's real. Mentioning age is not ageist. What's ageist is when we attach a negative or positive value to it. I would love that number to be on page two so that a physician, and y'all are really, really good at looking some at someone and assessing all kinds of you know, things about our, our physiological presentation that we don't know about that tell you a lot of things about our health. The minute we have a number, and again, this is true of everyone, not just physicians or people in healthcare, all sorts of assumptions click into place. So, you know, there's that. Uh, the reason it's not okay to make age the deciding factor in whether someone deserves a treatment or is healthy or unhealthy is because you can find lots of other people younger than that who suffer from that symptom or condition and loads of people older than it who do not. You know, as we get older, and I bet you can speak to this more expertly than I, our bodies work less well. That's a fact. That's biology, right? But they work, but they, um, but but it's utterly individual. There is a saying among geriatricians, I've heard them say it, I'm curious if you have, that if you've seen one 80-year-old, you've seen one 80-year-old, right? In, in other in other areas of medicine, it's like you've seen one heart attack, you've seen one heart attack. Right, so it's the same right. sort of thing. Right, and other factors, above all, are socioeconomic status, but also our social surroundings, all sorts of other factors have way more of an effect on our overall health than our chronological age. Absolutely. And it's not lost on me that, you know, presenting cases. So as an emergency room physician, I would have to pick up the phone and call the doctor on call, be it a surgeon, cardiologist, so forth. And I would say, I have a 36-year-old, you know, or I have a 77-year-old female here. And it's sort of like, that's the first number out of anyone's mouth. Um, even before their vital signs. And it shouldn't, it really shouldn't be. I mean, an analogy here is is newspapers. The Guardian newspaper, which is UK based, just changed their guidelines to say, to ask their uh, reporters to not mention age unless it is critical to the story, which in the event of a prodigy, a physical feat is relevant, but it's almost never relevant. Journalists hate this idea. They're like, ah, you know, it's part of the who, what, when, where, why. No, it's a habit. And you know what? 
We used to put race in newspaper stories, and we stopped for the same reason. So doctors, absolutely, age needs to be part of the story. I, I don't know about race. I would say more. It's more about, you know, your, I don't think race is not a biological attribute either. We need to look at the individual as an individual always and everywhere. Yeah, I would agree. We've had some discussions with other specialists in, in other areas, particularly pulmonology and so forth. And sort of the, the, the physiologic, I mean, for a long time, there's a measurement of lung function that we were calibrating differently in African-Americans than we were in white people. And uh, we had a pulmonologist on who was like, that actually just recently changed. So yes, I, w- I would agree with you 100%. So I, I put some questions out to other folks um, that I work with. Um, and so if we're not going to say, say, older adults, What's the sort of the, you know, our seniors or whatever word, what's the term, what's the term we should be using? You have asked the one question I have solved. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, Which, uh, I mean, no one likes senior, no one wants to be elderly, and I don't love elderly um, because I don't like the the in front of the elderly because it suggests that all old people are the same. And in fact, heterogeneity increases with age right? The older we are, the more different from each other, physically, cognitively, socially, all the rest. Uh, When I was writing my book, I literally got tired of typing older people. And I shortened it for my own purposes to olders and youngers. And I will tell you that the people who know me and the people who work with me have adopted that word because a couple of reasons. It's value neutral, senior, or elder implies seniority, you know, a higher social status. And it's a beautiful word in some cultures. Y'all should use whatever word you want to use. But I don't think older people have more, should have more value, more social status, or less. It should be neutral. The other thing about olders and youngers is that it makes the really important point that we age in relation to others. A four-year-old will assure you that she is older than her three-year-old sister, right? And Mrs. McGillicuddy will assure you that she is younger than Mrs. Kravitz in the next bed over. So we are olders in some contexts, youngers in others, and it's really important to see age that way and to bust down this, this um, you know, false binary. All binaries are false, I think, pretty much. But that some, some morning you're going to wake up old and everything will have gone to hell and you'll be on the wrong side of the velvet rope. There's no such rope. There's no such divider. Absolutely. And I think that um, this actually sort of, you anticipated a question that I had because I think that somebody I worked with wanted to say, so when you say older, what are you thinking about? And, and you made it, uh, you know, it's a broad spectrum. It can be it folks. Depends. Right. Folks can be in long-term care facilities. You know, other folks can be retired and busy flying, you know, all over the planet. And some of them can have retired early and chosen to help raise their grandchildren and hold down two or three jobs. So yeah, the spectrum is out there. Or just sitting on the porch swing. You know, yeah. that's okay too, if you Absolutely. can afford it. Absolutely. And so um, I think I know the answer to this question, but I, I sort of wanted to ask it. So what kind of language can we use for patients who are, say, in their 50s or 60s, where there are, by some medical organizations, certain screening tests mandated? So do you say, I know that my internist, who's a little younger than I am, and we poke fun at each other about our age. He goes, well, you're at the age now where you need to get dot, dot, dot. Um, I'm assuming that something more neutral, like um, we should talk about you getting this screening would probably be a better way to approach that. It would be more 
it would be uh, more neutral. And I am all in favor of age not being referenced. Presumably, if if he thinks you need to be screened for diabetes, it's because he's keeping an eye on your blood sugar. Or if he thinks you should have a a cardio stress test, it's because there's a history of heart disease in your family. So better to attach it to the a symptom you present with or family history than to chronological age. Yes. And I, and I think that one of the other things that I sort of also read about that I think you touched on, and as as the child of older adults, you know, who my parents are and in-laws are aging, and as the physician, I'm- Everyone's desig- aging. Right. I, I'm the- <laughs> I'm the designated um, medical appointment person because as the physician in the family, I'm the one that gets to understand, you know, to sort of, there's also, there's, right, there's elder speak and then there's med speak. And I think when you put those two together, and I want you to, can you talk a bit about elder speak? We've talked about med speak a lot on this podcast. Yeah. And I'm sure you have seen the really distressing phenomenon of doctors talking to you instead of the older person in the room who is actually the person presenting with the symptom or the medical question. And nothing about that is okay. I remember going in with my in-laws and Bill was in the hospital bed and Ruth, his wife with wisdom, she's a small person and she was sitting in a chair and I could not get the doctor to talk to her. And believe me, she was completely with the program in every way. Even when I kneeled down on the floor next to her and put my face next to her, she, he wouldn't address her. Elder speak is a phrase invented by Becca Levy, who has done much of the fantastic research that connects attitudes towards aging toward, uh, to physical and cognitive function. And it's when we talk to an older person in a condescending or demeaning way, dearie. What's wrong with us, dearie? Let's take that pill. Or even if you talk too loud, it is no one wants to be condescended to no matter how old. I used to hate it when I was a kid, right? So, and that's ages too, you know? So we are, so I mean, I, I bet you can give, I mean, you're the one with the, with the in the room experience. I bet you have more examples if I do, but the, you know, the basic rule is treat someone the way you would like to be treated. If you were, you know, 68 and, or 70 million and in the you know, chair, how do you, how would you like someone to talk to you? Exactly. And I think that, you know, what, what really sets it off to me is, is that I'm actually more, uh, clued into when it doesn't happen. Um, you know, I remember my family that went to a physician who she had seen before for a condition that had recurred. And it was refreshing. The, the physician, you know, addressed her. I was in the room with my father. This was my stepmother. And the physician made direct eye contact with her. And the conversation was entirely with her. And it was just so noticeable. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's something different going on here. And I'm like, oh. That's, re- that's really nice. And it re- raises a point and sort of that comes up around social justice advocacy, which is it's wonderful to be be able to call someone in for doing something well instead of just yeah, yeah, you're you know, you're ageist or you shouldn't have done this. So I I I hope that you said to the doctor, God, that was so refreshing. I feel like my stepmom is lucky to have you as her doctor. You know, a pat on the back is always welcome. Absolutely. Um and then and I want to sort of segue that part of the conversation to you know, some of the studies that I've read that indicate age does dictate level of care, as, as you alluded to. And, and the example that stuck to me, of course, because of emergency medicine, was during the COVID-19 pandemic, when we were short on ICU beds and ventilators and the decisions were made. And the, I, it feel, felt very actuarial to me. And I, it, it bothered the hell out of me. Oh, let's save the younger people um, and put them on the ventilators. You know, 
there's all kinds of things to unpack with that. I mean, it's really, really complicated as on this topic, as on so many others. I'm a little less judgy. <laughs> right. No, I get it. Than I used to be uh, because I watched um, uh, some videos at the time from physicians who were saying, especially those poor doctors in northern Italy at the very beginning, in emergency medicine, and here I'm going to pretend like I know more about what you do than you do, speed is of the essence. And the fact is that it is easier to as quicker to assess age than it is pulmonary function or all these other underlying things. So I stopped saying, you know, how awful it is that those doctors are doing it. But the fact is that it is not from, you know, we, we know it is not okay to allocate resources of any kind, medical or otherwise, by gender or by race, or by socioeconomic status, and it is not okay to do so either. It is, you know, it is, I mean, but but even that, I have to be honest, it's complicated. The, the death of a younger person, I'm not talking during a pandemic now, you know, it is more tragic because they have had less of life to experience, but that doesn't mean that that 65-year-old isn't enjoying their life giving enormous value, emotional, economic, whatever, to his, you know, sex tuplets or whatever. And it's really, really important, circling back to the obvious, to judge each patient and each individual. I mean, there are, we're doing all kinds of surgeries on really old people. And if their baseline physical, physiological function is good, they are every bit as likely to, you know, to recover fully and benefit from it as a younger person Although, let's be honest, you know, I mean, I had a total shoulder replacement three years ago. I was 69. I hope I'll enjoy it for, you know, at least another 15 years. I didn't get it when I was 15. But then again, arthritis didn't was, didn't eat my shoulder away till I was in my 60s. So Norm and I were talking before the pro- podcast about Mick Jagger, who, you know, had a major uh, cardiovascular surgery, you know, last year or the year before. Um, and here he is, 81, on stage, still doing what he does. Um, so how yeah, I agree. With, out? I, yeah. How does he do all that gyrating? I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have, <laughs> he doesn't have any arthritis. No, but I, and then that's also one of the things about, I think ageism isn't just about number as numbers get up. Um, I know that I have talked to people. I've had two knee replacements. I had them before I turned 60. I needed them. My joints were crap, but I ran into a number of people who are doctors were saying, well, you don't need it now. You can have it when you're 65 or 67. And, you know, the literature clearly points out why are we discriminating on too young an age for this? These people are going to decondition. They're going to gain weight. Their cardiovascular fitness is going to diminish. They could, you know, become pre-diabetic. Like pick the patient that's appropriate for the procedure and take, to your point, the number out. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I mean, with life expectancy on the increase, those people, I mean, if, if depending, of course, on their overall situation always, but, um, you know, they are likely to get decades of use out. What I hear about joint replacements in general is, gee, why did I wait so long? I went to my GP about my shoulder and she said, um, go to a rheumatologist. And I said, why? And she said, because they're joint doctors that don't operate. And I went to a joint a rheumatologist and he looked at you know did an x-ray moved my arm for 30 seconds and said you are an excellent candidate for shoulder replacement go have it tomorrow right exactly i mean and the other side of it is is my 86 year old mother had her hip replaced last year 
And shocker, she also had had her knees replaced, but they didn't do her knees until she was like 77 or 78. And she's like, why did they wait so long? And then you got yours. And I said, well, because I advocated for mine and I guess I probably should have advocated for hers. And you're a man. Right. And that makes a difference. It and does. you're a physician and that makes a difference. You know, there's also a lot of status stuff, hierarchy stuff going on where we are, you know, we we hold doctors up as fig- figures of authority. And especially if you are a woman and especially if you are a person of color and we haven't even touched on the whole ugly history of all the very legitimate reasons people of color have to distrust the medical establishment and so on, you know, it's super important for physicians um not to um you know abuse that authority right and, and to advocate and I, you know, we have we have gone through several times you know tuskegee and many other situations in the medical research and community um that really and that's still exists as one of the barriers for enrolling african-american or people of color in no clinical kidding. trials in or in COVID immunizations, I, I met a woman in Ann Arbor who works with the big black community there and all the education she did with the community there to try and overcome their entirely legitimate skepticism about the the vaccine. Yeah, it's it's really tough. I have a wonderful story about learning something from a physician, if you okay. would like it. Uh, certainly. <laughs> My niece is a physician, and I used to say in my very first talk that my worst fear, now I'm embarrassed to say it, but this is how we learn, um, that my worst fear was ending up drooling in some grim institutional hallway. And she said to me, Auntie, I work with a lot of people who drool, and they wish they didn't, and they're embarrassed by it, and I wish you wouldn't say that anymore. And I stopped saying it. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, right. And I think that there are ways that, we can we can say things that that can be, you know, express our fears or what we're thinking about. And I, I like I do like that, you know, instead of just saying you shouldn't say that, replacing the reason why. I think that's great. That's why it stuck with me. Yeah, there you go. It's the same thing about cases in medicine. And it's calling in instead of you know she didn't try and shame me. She just said, "Hey, here's why I have a problem with what you said. Do you think you could, you know." say it differently or not in this case not say it right exactly and so i wanted to sort of segue to something here uh another term that i've heard i've heard in in appointments with with my parents and in-laws but i also hear occasionally is that making accommodations for your age now there's no number associated with that so i'm gonna ask the question yo is that ageist hell yeah i mean would like what what does that mean what is an accommodation for age uh, can you give me an example of one? Right. I think that the I think what the physician was saying to one of my uh, parents was um, because she didn't, you know, have the same amount of energy, or actually, I think it had to do before her hip replacement that maybe she had to slow down a little bit. And her internist was like, uh, "No, we don't want you to slow down. You've controlled your diabetes with diet and exercise for thirty-five years. You slow down, and we're going to put you on a bunch of medicines." So good for her. Yeah. I mean, but but that would be let's say let's say the patient was in fact not not quite so competent, but still that would be a question of accommodating not their age, but their energy level or their physical capacity. You know, people can be couch potatoes at thirty and marathoners at eighty. Right, exactly. So I have one other question for you here because I I like to have 
not simple solutions, but things that we can do to check ourselves. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we do in medicine where if somebody comes in and you think you know the diagnosis, you're supposed to stop a second, you know, take a break, go back and look at an x-ray, check ourselves to make sure we're not making assumptions. Do you have any kind of quick, you know, pearl or tip for somebody in the healthcare profession, profession to check themselves? Are they doing something that's ageist? Is there, is there a little sort of tip, suggestion? I, I don't think there's a specific tip that wouldn't be relevant also to the gender of the person, to the race of the person, to the socioeconomic status. Am I perhaps, you know, mentally putting that first page of their chart with the age behind it? I, but it's more than that. You know, we all, there's an orchestra in Europe that really wanted to diversify because it was mostly, wait for it, white men. And they tried and they were not successful until they conducted auditions behind a curtain. And even then they had to put down a carpet so that they couldn't tell the size of the person, right? So what is that mental curtain, that mental carpet, or how could we turn that around to a more positive? What are the, the biases that we all have that click into place when we you know, are with people who frankly are not like us? And how can we just become more aware of them in every context, but especially in medicine, because you all are helping us to um, live long and live well. I hope so. Am I so? I, absolutely. My last question. Um, well, I have one last question, which is really fun. I usually end with a fun one, but so now I want to flip it on with ageism against HCPs, and we talked a little bit about it that you can have it on either healthcare professionals. You can have it on either end. You can be like, "Oh my God, these are some really young people," or "Holy crap, that person, you know, looks old." Um, and, and I know that there's a bias in the profession, um, and that some folks who are, you know, still very vital and practicing and really enjoy what they're doing at sometimes maybe perceived by their younger colleagues as maybe getting ready to retire or slowing down. Um, thoughts on that? You know, it's always a mistake to make an assumption on the basis of age. Uh, it's important, you know, if you are a surgeon in particular or an airplane pilot, like are you are your hands steady on that scalpel? Are your hands steady on that wheel? But most jobs don't require that level of physical, um, you know, skill or reflexes, speed of reflexes. You know, they just don't. And doctors are measured six ways from Sunday on a regular basis as to how they are performing. So it is just about not making those assumptions and and working, you know, it's unlearning is hard, but unlearning, you know, is doable and it's free. And if I can make a point about that, there's, you know, an awful lot about aging that we cannot control. If like us, you are white and have privilege and access to good health care, you already have one, you know, um, have a lot of advantages, but still you could, you know, you could come down with a disease, you could be in a car accident and so on. The one thing we can control is our attitudes. And study after study shows that attitudes towards aging affect how our minds and bodies function at the cellular level. I, I will only mention one finding, that people who have more accurate attitudes towards aging and more positive, more fact-based, are less likely to get dementia, even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. So, if you medical care professionals, healthcare professionals listening to this want to stay healthy, educate yourself about ageism and encourage anytime you hear a patient say, I'm too old for that, or I just, you know, that's what, what can you expect at my age? 
you, it's never age. They might be too out of shape. They might be malnourished. They might be too smart for it. But don't ever let age be the reason that stands between one of your patients and getting treatment or you providing it or, or providing it for yourself. And with that note, I'm going to say thank you so much for a really stimulating conversation. And it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You too, Tim. A pleasure to meet you. Thank you. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining us. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Ashton Applewhite, and to Norm Dion, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.